This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Wildfires in the state have burned vast acreages and damaged or destroyed more than 200 homes. Of course, many more homes have been saved. And that made us wonder, how do firefighters decide whether or not a home can be saved? Brian De Los Santos is a captain and wildland fire coordinator for Littleton Fire and Rescue. Welcome to the program. Thank you. You've been with Littleton for 25 years and have fought wildfires all across the country, but you haven't yet been on the line during the wildfires here in Colorado. What are your thoughts as you look at what's been happening across the state? Well, it's, um, it reminds me of uh, seasons past for sure when Colorado has been in a, a particularly dry state. seems to happen every six to ten years or so. We kind of go through this cycle and we're yeah. back right in it again. Could be a, you know, last year it started up. Could be a busy rest of this year. And then next year, of course, it could you know, be just as bad or start tailing off. And, you know, personally, how does it feel for you to kind of be back here in Littleton when, when all these acreages are burning? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a little uh, frustrating, I suppose, uh, especially when, when I know that uh, I myself, as well as my team members, have a, a very specialized and, and a valuable skill set that uh, we can be employing up in our neighboring counties and communities. It's a little frustrating, uh, especially because it is um, here in our own state, too. These mm-hmm. are our grounds that we'd like to, you know, vacation in. And, and so we feel a little bit of, uh, you know, um, likeness and, and kindness to this uh, area as well. Because it definitely is, is, it's a little bit different than fighting, let's say, a fire in downtown Denver or something like that. Yeah, big time. Yeah, different uh, entirely. I mean, fire's fire, but uh, what's what's burning is and where it's burning is an entirely different way to, to deal with it. So the Littleton Fire Department has a wildland fire team of 35 members why does it, a city like Littleton need one of those? Yeah, good question. There's, um, it actually started in uh, late 90s when we uh, obtained um, seven, 8,000 acres of open space south of Highlands Ranch. And that open space is uh, just as rugged as you might see anywhere in the, in the west. And so uh, with lightning coming through there and other accidental human starts, then uh, we have to fight that fire and, and do it the same way that we would that anybody would do it in the forest. Um, fire burns the same way there. We can get hurt just as bad and just as easy if we're not careful and know how to do it. And so does the wildland fire team just do the wildland fires? Or are they also trained to also fight fires in the city? Yeah, they, they're um, fully qualified firefighters, paramedics, everybody that rides on the engines, the ladders, the ambulances, everybody. Um, we're, it's just an additional skill set that 35 of us decided to um, jump off and, and learn and become good at. I want to read a quote from Daniel Lynn Jr. Uh, he suffered burns over 70% of his body during the Twisp River fire in Washington State in 2015. He says, quote, looking back on it, if it were up to me, most of these wildfires, they need to let them burn if lives are at risk. Once you lose a firefighter, they ain't coming back, unquote. That's what he said. What are your, what are your thoughts? Um, should some wildfires just be left to burn? Yes, um, yes, and no, and it's that quote is is uh, certainly uh, valid for sure. This day and age, with us and what we're told when we go up there to fight these fires, you know, no life is is worth a house or tree, etc. But um, the the problem is 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 we don't know half the time if there are people up there, um, if there are you know um, elderly folks that are living in these homes that aren't you know getting their cell phone nine one one evacuations, and so at the very least we have to go and try to make a rescue at least, and that's what puts us. Said you know in danger, uh, and then there's just the long-term imp- um, economic impact and stuff that's hard to just ignore. You know, after the fires uh, rip through a community, um, there's all kinds of uh, fallout, whether it be you know uh, water quality, economy type issues, and, and such. So. 
Um, it's hard to ignore that, but at the same time, it is you know obviously not worth losing a life over. You mentioned that there are homes in these areas. You may not know if people are in there or out of them. You know, everyone has a right to live where they want to live. But what about the idea that there are people building homes in some pretty high-risk areas? Yeah, I mean, it's it's no doubt that it's because of the beauty and, um, you know, seclusion and, and various things that people want to um, live in. And um, I don't know if there's a way to stop that, you know, with our uh, lifestyle or our culture. Uh, there's really no way to tell somebody you can't live in the you know the most beautiful area in the in the world or in the state in their mind, uh, but at the same time I think along with that comes responsibility, uh, homeowner responsibility. Just like living on a floodplain, you know, do you rebuild there every time your your home gets mowed over? It's the same kind of concept there. There's certain responsibilities that the county, the state, and the most I would say that the homeowner has to shoulder in order to make their house a little bit more survivable. Well, let's talk about the intersection of that. What you do when you prepare for these fires and, and what homeowners can do. We'll get to what you do first. When you are looking at a blaze that has, has you know erupted, what do you look at? Do you look at a map and say, hey, this home over here is okay, this one's not? Can you walk us through that? Sure. So when we get up to an area that is uh, threatened, um, sometimes we are you know, assigned to structure protection. Um, and so first thing is, is just to take account um, an overall um, inventory of, of, of how many primary structures, and that, that being you know, not vacation homes, not outbuildings, not cabins. We, we kind of prioritize things as to what is... Where someone um, lives all the time. Right, what's yeah. more important. And so we'll, we'll take that um, and, and take an inventory and then find out where they are in terms of the fire threat itself. You know, is the fire moving towards it, away from it? Um, could the weather change, etc.? So we start triaging, basically, uh, from that 30,000-foot level um, down to the actual ground where we're actually putting boots on the ground in front of, hopefully, each house to be able to assess it. Now, are, are, are there times where you're like, this house is just not going to be saved because of something that the homeowner did not do? Or Yeah, before it even gets to that, we look at just where it is in the lay of the land, the topography. So, um, of oh, course, a lot of people put um, houses up on top of hills because they the want the pristine. Is beautiful, yeah, yeah. Beautiful. You can't blame them. And then they put glass on the, on the downhill side of that house to get the great view and, and then a nice deck out, out on front of that. And so these are all like heat traps and um, ways to... Um, uh, bring fire basically from the surface and the, and the trees into their house. So um, we look at homes that are in bad spots, whether it be on the top of a hill like that and or um, what we call a, a saddle or a chimney. And those, those, I mean, we have to look really close at those, but we, we I wouldn't say write them off, but we put them maybe as second priority because odds are if the homeowner took 100% perfect mitigation ha- uh, uh, measures and, and we had five fire trucks sitting in that driveway, that that house still wouldn't survive. So even with those mitigation me- uh, measures, which I want to talk about now, there could be a concern that home may, may just be a loss. Yep. Yep. Now, what if the situation changes and, and you know, three days later, you've got 50 fire trucks. I'm making up that number. But does then the, the situation change where you can maybe start looking down the list of those homes? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of times in the first uh, few hours or days of a, of a major fire like this, there's just not enough resources or they're coming from far uh, away places. And so it takes a little time to react and get enough uh, based on the fire behavior itself. So when the... Um, more resources come in, whether it be aircraft, hand crews, uh, engines, etc. We can reprioritize and re-triage, which is an ongoing process, really, based on all the factors, um, and possibly dedicate more time to a house that we previously might have said we're not going to we're not going to stay and defend. Yeah. 
So it's the same concept. We don't we don't want to kill ourselves either trying to defend these houses. And so one of the first things, in fact, the first thing that we decide when we pull up on a house is, is there an adequate safety zone, what we call a safety zone, um, right here at the house? Is it something that we, basically we can take the full impact of a fire um, while sitting in lounge chairs and not be having to deploy our shelters or anything. So it has to be a very big space for us to park our truck as well as our crews and not be affected negatively at all um, by that fire. And the house doesn't count. We can't run in the house and wait for the fire to pass. That doesn't, that doesn't, doesn't count doesn't as a safety work. zone. Yeah. So many houses don't have that safety zone. So right away, we, we already make the decision based on that alone that we're not going to stay when the fire front hits. So we do as much prep as we can, whether it be uh, foaming the house, um, doing a lot of other measures, trimming some trees, things like that, if the homeowner didn't already do it. Um, and then we leave when the fire front hits. We go to our safety zone, wherever that is. And then after the fire front passes, we go back and try to uh, save the house at that point, which many homes we have saved that in that method because it's just a very small fire on the deck or something that we can go up and put out with our foot out. almost yeah. by that point. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're talking with Brian De Los Santos. He's the Wildland Fire Coordinator for Littleton Fire and Rescue. We're talking about uh, firefighters' choice when they have to either save a home or say we can't save that home based on the safety of their firefighters and, and other, other issues. We've heard the term fighting the fire on, on the ground. You know, what does that mean? Is that where the, the fire is not in the trees and things like that? Or, or is it just more of a, uh, let's say, from the air as opposed yep. to from the ground? I, I, I think that's probably what you're, you're referring to is, mm. is um, you know, a lot of money is put into air tankers and slurry and helicopters well, and all that and, kind and of and stuff. It's very yep. dramatic with that, yes. that retardant flying. It's basically a little air force that we mm. call um, uh, to help us out. But um, I think what you're referring to is that the fires can't be put out 100% by those uh, resources. Um, it takes somebody with a, a hand tool and some water. Uh, or maybe not even water, but to stir those ambers up. And basically, it's just like putting out a campfire before you leave. you got to stir it up, get down a couple feet deep, put out all the heat, and you do that for you know thousands of acres, hundreds of thousands of acres. So that's why it takes a long time to, to do it right. You can't leave any heat at all. So that's, that's what they're referring to, is you can't do that with an aircraft. How does it change if the fire is in the trees, though? Well, it becomes basically unfightable by ground resources. Now you're talking about you know heat and intensity so great, uh, it might as well be a, a hurricane to, to somebody on the ground. Um, nobody can uh, be even in the remote area if it gets into the crowns, is what they call it. I was going to ask that crowning. I hear a lot of that, that yep. in fires, crown firing. So um, uh, that's where the aircraft then can come in and make a, a difference and kind of you know knock it down a little bit and keep it out of the crowns. That's that's what we're trying to do. Uh, but even aircraft sometimes can't stop that because it's just a chain reaction, basically. And we just got to get everybody out of the way, including residents, and just let it do its thing. There's often talk about we're going to attack this front or attack that front or, or, or you know, make a run here. Uh, but these fires aren't, aren't like a, a battlefield. I mean, they're organic. They change and, and, and conditions change. How do, you, how do you deal with that if things completely blow up in front of you and you don't know where you're at? Yeah, yeah great question. There's, um, there's plan B, plan C, plan D usually that fire managers have and, and fire teams have. And so um, 
uh, along with the help of uh, other resources like meteorologists and fire behavior analysts, um, as well as our state um, multi-mission aircraft, you know, that does a lot of good surveillance from the sky, real-time surveillance. Mm-hmm. All that intel basically is just constantly being fed to the, the operations um, chief and, and, and incident commander, and they, they make decisions basically like a chess game. Mm-hmm. If the fire is going to do this or does this, then they'll, they'll change their tactics, and it's it's hard to predict, like you said. I mean, um, the, the best weather people in the world can come in and, and say, hey, there's a cold front going to come through tonight, and it just doesn't, or maybe it does and surprises everybody. So that's why the plan B and C have to have to be in existence. You mentioned um, fire cycles of, of six to eight years. Uh, it really does seem, though, that Colorado is burning, sections of Colorado burning every year. Yeah, I would say so, but not at this scale. Um, usually uh, we watch it, and of course we have to be ready to go anywhere in the in the state for sure. That's why I watch it really close. But um, you'll have your, your big fires um, in the state probably every year. Uh, but when you start getting the multiple um, simultaneous fires like we're having right now, that's kind of what I'm talking about in terms of the cycle. Um, and it's it's a good thing that it's, you know, not every year seemingly like in the West Coast. Uh, but on the on the flip side of that, it, 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 it kind of leaves people's memories, um, unfortunately, um, when it has that kind of a lull period. Um, and so people kind of forget or, or they just think that it won't happen to them kind of thing. And they forget the uh, the mitigation measures that they, they should be taking on those off years. Tell us about this idea of severity, um, the fact that when there's heightened risk of fires, that there are patrols in the area that, that look for these fires and, and uh, that with this high sense of fire, there are even more crews in the area looking for these fires before they even begin. Yeah, it's a, it's a federal term. Uh, the federal agencies, Forest Service, BLM, uh, BIA, uh, they're the ones who use it. And um, basically, it's a way to augment and supplement their existing resources that they have on their district all the time. Um, and so uh, when the uh, fuel models and the various uh, moistures and, and um, uh, the critical um, factors that, that really go into um, uh, easily starting and or, or large wildland fires, yeah. um, when they start seeing these things starting to shape up and, and they could be a long-term type thing, you know, hey, we're starting to, see, you know, we're not getting much snow in, this, in the springtime, for example. So they start watching that stuff real close. And when they reach a threshold, um, they'll usually bring in uh, outside resources, whether it be municipal departments like ours um, or other federal agencies from across the country that aren't maybe it's in, in such a critical area. And is that to tamp out those fires before they become these that's massive right. blazes? Yeah, to hit it hard and fast because um, that's the idea is to keep fires small and not let them get to be the size that we see on the news today. So, so how many fires are out there that we may never hear about? Oh, man, there's probably hundreds, hundreds of yeah, hundreds of fires that are happening um, uh, probably every week that are, are small. They're kept to a single tree lightning strike um, and or uh, maybe a campfire got out of control and they keep it to within an acre or so because just a couple of engines get there. But usually when it gets to be even an acre, um, if it's rough terrain, they'll throw a whole uh, load of smoke jumpers out on it if they can access it that way. Um, uh, other aircraft for sure, engines, all that kind of stuff. And we just never hear about that. That's just a, a, a daily thing that happens in the forest mm-hmm. in Colorado, well, across the West, really. And, and real quick, real briefly, uh, for people that are maybe uh, seeing they're like, my home may not be mitigated well. I mean, can you give just real quick some pointers about that? Yeah, you know, the big thing is to um, think about how fire will travel from the, from the surrounding area into your house. Yep. So um, breaking that chain. So if it's a continuous fuel of um, either trees, shrubs, 
um, grass that leads right up to your house. You gotta you gotta clear that out. You know, thirty, fifty, even a hundred feet sometimes, depending on where you're at on the in the in the topography. The other thing is to um, a lot of fires start because of the amber wash and the embers that fall out of the sky oh, yeah. from the nearby crown fire. It doesn't even have to be really impacting your house per se at that moment. But uh, embers are basically like snowflakes. That's what I like to tell our guys. And so think about anywhere a snowflake would land and collect. That's going to be potentially an ember trap where those embers will sit there for a few minutes or an hour and slowly you know, start burning your deck or your floor mat by your front door or the pine needles behind your solar panels on your roof, anything like that. And so that's some, a lot of times how homes burn and the surrounding area doesn't burn. So it's a lot of that preparation. A on lot the front of prep, end. and it's not just a one-time deal. That's what I think another mistake a lot of homeowners keep doing it every it's every constant. year. Constant, it's constant. Yeah. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Brian De Los Santos is a captain and the Wild and Fire Coordinator for Littleton Fire and Rescue. He joined us to discuss some of the boots-on-the-ground decisions firefighters have to make in battling fires like the ones currently plaguing Colorado. Denver's student test scores are in the middle of the pack nationwide, but the city has the third largest achievement gap in the nation. That's between poor students and their more affluent peers. There also continues to be big gaps between students of color and their white peers. Once again, the district is looking for ways to improve outcomes for all students. Joining me to break this all down is CPR education reporter Jenny Brindine. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Nathan. Well, you've been reporting on this achievement gap, or or many call it the opportunity gap, for years. What's changed? Yes, this gap goes back decades. And as to what's changed, while there's been some progress in Denver, the gap between poor students and more affluent students is now at 45 percentage points. And there's this education watchdog group called A-plus Colorado, and they analyzed the data recently. And they found, uh, they held a panel and invited a few former and current Denver School Board members to talk about the findings. Teresa Pena sat on the Denver School Board from 2003 to 2011, and she put it this way. Over the last 15 years, Denver has changed almost every aspect of any educational policy that we could change. We had student-based budgeting, we've changed governance, we've changed curriculum, we've changed standards and testing. And the one thing that hasn't changed is the outcome for poor and black and brown kids. How big is Denver's achievement gap compared to other large cities? Only Washington, D.C. and Atlanta have bigger gaps. Denver was tied with Austin for the third largest gap. And that's according to most scores on national tests that are given every two years to fourth and eighth graders. All right. So based on your reading, what's the primary takeaway of this new data? Well, that the district will struggle to make achievement goals it set for 2020. One Mm -hmm. of those goals, that 80% of all third graders read and write at grade level. But currently, for students of color, that's only about 25% that are on target. And for the white population, it's 66%. So Van Scholes, he's the CEO of A-plus Colorado, says at this pace to reach the Denver 2020 goal. It's going to take a long time. It's going to take about 30 years. And we should note Colorado adopted tougher standards and students started being tested on those tougher standards in 2015. And that was a year after the latest goals of the Denver plan were were defined. And in terms of what are the gaps and, and why are they so large in Denver? 
Nobody really knows for sure. Denver has had massive support for low-income students. They've had math tutors and social-emotional support, special literacy training for teachers. Much of that's paid off. Uh, Last year, the district posted the biggest gains ever on state tests. But the large gaps could be because white, more affluent students in Denver are improving faster than their peers uh, nationwide on national tests. But students from low-income families perform worse in Denver than low-income students do in other cities. And we don't really know why that is. Well, what does the district have to say about that? The district is proud of the progress it's made. Uh, Superintendent Tom Bosberg made that clear in his comments at a recent education conference. He compared student outcomes in 2005. And so that's before the big reform push. In every area, we trailed the state double digits, 12 points, 15 points, 25 points, graduation rate 30 points, English language learners 15 points. You know, now in almost every measure, if you look, for example, demographic groups, we are equal to the rest of the state or above the rest of the state. English language learners were significantly better than the rest of the state. We have still so far to go, and that's the part of the glass that's dramatically half empty. So last year, Denver students in all categories outpaced other students across the state in academic growth. Uh, What that is, is it's the progress students make compared to students in other districts who started at similar academic levels, so their academic peers. That means on average, current DPS students were a full grade ahead of where previous students were four years ago. While the district is behind on graduation rates, the superintendent has another perspective on it. We have doubled the number of our African-American Latino students who are graduating from high school every year, who are going to college every year, right? That is incredibly meaningful. And we should say since 2005, enrollment in the district has gone up 27%. Uh, He acknowledges, though, there are still far too many kids who are going without opportunities they need. But Jenny, nationally, doesn't Denver have a reputation for its bold reforms, ushering charter schools, giving district-run schools more flexibility, and closing schools where students chronically struggle? And all that was supposed to help, right? Yes. And here's where the panel got quite honest about what they think the district's doing well and what it's not doing well. Several people said the district over the past uh, 10 years has a tendency to kind of go after the flavor of the month in terms of initiatives. Former board member Teresa Pena says the district has lost sight of the one thing they should be investing in. You hire the best teachers, you identify what they are the best at, and you continuously support their development. So Denver does have a robust program to help teachers advance to leadership positions in a school. But many teachers are dissatisfied with other things like working conditions, the district's evaluation system, pay is still a big issue, and not enough rigorous training opportunities. What other observations were there from panel members about the achievement data? Yeah. Former board member Nate Easley says the district continues to do a poor job of including parents. I think it's difficult for the district to do that. I think there needs to be a parent empowerment effort. It could be one organization or several that just looks out for the interest of parents as it relates to getting the best school for their kid. That's all they do. Put them on an even ground when they're talking to the school district about the best school for their baby. 
Jenny, hasn't the current board just announced it's doing a one-year pause on any new school closings? Yeah, and this was really controversial, uh, this policy of closing low-performing schools. A memo on this says the policy felt arbitrary at times. And instead, the board would like to get verbal and written updates from a struggling school, maybe get some support or, or maybe pair that struggling school, consolidate it with another school. Some current board members are also concerned, I understand, the report card that the district gives to all schools, ostensibly to help parents choose schools, isn't really working as intended. Yes, the old SPF. Uh, One current board member, Barbara O'Brien, points out tests keep changing, schools bounce up and down in their ratings. And I think the only way to get there is to have a community conversation about what's important to people and then figure out what can be reflected in maybe it's more than one tool. Maybe it doesn't need to all roll roll up into one Excel spreadsheet. What steps is the district taking now to determine how to close gaps? So here's the new idea, and it's a work in progress, but it's basically this huge effort that's going to launch in the fall to find out from the community what do parents really want from schools? How can the district better support students from different racial and cultural backgrounds? Does the public like all these choices we get in Denver? Like there's international baccalaureate programs, there's Montessori schools, there's single gender schools, there's language immersion programs. What do they think about those? And there are other factors, we should say, that play a role in student outcomes. And that is poverty. That's a big one. Angela Cobian, a current school board member, is concerned that high rents are causing enrollment to drop. And she wants the listening tour to reach parents like her aunt. Right now, about this time, she's dropping off my little cousin at school and then going to start one of her many shifts at a fast food restaurant. She's not here, and I would like to know what she thinks about the direction that we're going in as a district. So we need to create a more inclusive public narrative and discourse around what our new 2020 plan is. So it sounds like the district is gearing up for the next big improvement push. That's right. And we should say where we've come from. Barbara O'Brien says Denver was one of the worst districts in the nation 15 years ago to go from bad to average. It has been a huge lift. I think the current board is committed to figuring out what needs to be done to take us now for the next push to go from average to the top 25% of all large districts. So it definitely seems things are are continuing on in the Denver School District. That's right. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you, Nathan. Jenny Brundine is CPR's education reporter. You can find more of her reporting at CPR.org. Next week, an armored truck will transport a small piece of cardboard worth millions of dollars from a secret vault to downtown Denver. It's the holy grail of baseball cards, one from 1952, featuring New York Yankee center fielder Mickey Mantle. Mantle was a legendary player. There's a fly ball out to right field. That ball is going, going, it is gone. That's Mantle slugging a home run during the 1952 World Series. For three days, the rare card will be on display alongside other items from baseball history, like Joe DiMaggio's uniform and a baseball used during the first Rockies game 25 years ago. The current Play Ball exhibit at History Colorado features memorabilia from the prodigious collection of Denverite Marshall Fogel. Marshall, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Well, first tell us about this Mickey Mantle baseball card. It is the holy grail. Why is it that? For several interesting reasons. Uh, When they made baseball cards before 1952, 
They were like paintings and artwork. 1952 was the first time in the modern era where they actually took photographs of the players uh-huh. and placed them on the card. And that example is the 1952 Mickey Mantle card, which is uh, the most popular of all the cards made for him. And the, this one is so rare because it is so perfect? It's perfect. Think about the fact that when Topps baseball card company located at the time in Brooklyn, New York, where else? They right. would uh, stack sheets of baseball cards, uh, and then they would use a guillotine-type knife to cut the sheets into single cards. Well, those sheets would slip. The bottom line is the mantle card was cut perfectly. It, the mother didn't throw it away, and the kids didn't play with it. And every corner is like razor sharp. The beautiful coloring of it. It's just, it's its the holy grail, as you said, in your opening. I, I can imagine, like, maybe it was lost in a cupboard somewhere or something. <laughs> and nobody touched it. You know? Uh, wh- what does the 1952 Mickey Mantle card mean to you, not just on this level of, of, of being perfect, but on a personal level? Several reasons. One, I had the pleasure of meeting him and spending time with Mickey Mantle oh. uh, before he passed away. And I've had a lot of Yankee players at my home, Don Larson, Ralph Terry, Ryan Duran, Gil McDougal, and they spoke about Mantle. And they said when he took his shirt off, you know, men really didn't want to look at another man, but he was built like nobody else. He was powerfully built. He was very nice to everybody, handsome as well. And the great story they told me is that when Mantle won the Triple Crown in 1956, he went to George Weiss, the general manager, and asked for a raise. And general manager Weiss said, you're not getting a raise. We're going to cut your salary. And Mantle said, why? And Weiss said, well, you'll never have another year like you did. <laughs> well, he, we know differently. <laughs> he got his raise, though. Uh, you know, so that Triple Crown is best home run, uh, batting average, and runs batted in. Is that right? Am I getting that? Yes. Okay. I am not, I'm not a sports fan uh, too much, but at least I, I'm, I think that's By the correct. way, the uniform that is on display for the fans that go to the Carter History Museum will be Mickey Mantle's uniform, home jersey, that hung in his restaurant in New York next to the Plaza Hotel and across from Central Park. Really? And I was fortunate enough to call the owner of the uniform and ask if I could buy it. He said, sure. Took it out of the restaurant, and now it's on display at the museum. I mean, that must be a great feeling for you. You picked up the phone call, and now you have that uniform. I do. Wow. How has collecting memorabilia for you reflected uh, your youth in life? Well, I think it, it, baseball uh, is, is a fiber of our who we are. It reminds us of, of what used to be good and might be good again. It, uh, baseball, it reminds us of the past. You know, America's ruled by steamrollers. We race like a blackboard, we rebuild it and erase it again. But baseball remains the game. It brings people together. Uh, it is heaven. It's a perfect place to be. But what about baseball cards? I know that kids these days, they have everything online, digitally. I mean, how do you uh, – are, are there still people collecting baseball cards that are kids? And, and 
I think there are they're they're mass produced. Uh, the problem with a lot of the players don't stay with the team like in our day. But Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Hank Greenberg, Sandy Koufax, Hank Aaron, all these players, the Iron Horse, Lou Gehrig, will always be popular and collectible. So the the industry is strong. Kids still collect. And uh, I can't speak for what it's like for them, but it was sure a lot of fun for me. You mentioned Lou Gehrig. Uh, not all of your collection is on display in Denver, but um, I want to talk about this bat that you have that belonged to Lou Gehrig, uh, who was forced to retire at age 36 because of ALS, the disease often known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, here's a clip from a report that included his famous 1939 farewell speech. First baseman Lou Gehrig hung up an amazing mark by playing in 2,130 consecutive games. Then a fatal disease attacked baseball's Iron Man. In Yankee Stadium... Touched to tears by the tribute, Gary made his last public appearance. For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad brag. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Tell us a little about Lou Gehrig and, and why he considered himself the luckiest man on earth. First of all, when Lou Gehrig gave that speech that included I'm the luckiest man on the face of the earth, that was not prepared. He wasn't going to say anything until the manager, Joe McCarthy, said, Lou, you're in front of 60,000 people. You have to say something. By the way, what's also interesting is there are photographs of Gehrig and Ruth together. Now, in those days, men didn't put their arms around each other in front of people. But these pictures of Ruth hugging Garrick, putting his hands on his face, is a demonstration of, of how much love and respect Ruth had for Garrick uh, and, and the emotion that he felt uh, knowing that Garrick was, was ill and wasn't going to make it. Uh, Garrick's a very special person. On one hand, both Ruth and Garrick were famous players, but Ruth was was jovial and, and flamboyant, where Garrick, the Iron Horse, was quiet and serene, yet both were loved and respected by the fans in New York and across the country. Um, so you spoke about the item I have in yeah, my collection. the bat. I have the bat when Garrick retired and lived in New Rochelle, New York. He had a bat, his, probably his last bat, in his closet. And a young boy came to the apartment where Garrick lived, and Garrick gave him his last bat. Mm. What a humble experience. Not only did he give him the bat, but he wrote on it, To Jerry, may you take better advantage of this than I did, signed it, Lou Garrick. Uh, when you hold something like that from a man who you respect, uh, it sends shivers up your spine. I want to talk about that real quick. You, you get to touch these things. You've felt them. You've held them. You understand where they're from. How does that feel? Well, I have to tell you, the only uniform I ever put on was Mantles, but that's a secret. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> we'll keep it a secret just between you and I. You got it. Uh, feels great. Um, you know, there's something special about baseball. It's a game of the singular hero. Uh, people remember the luckiest man on the face of the earth, or they remember when Babe Ruth was asked, you know, you make more money than the president of the United States. And Ruth said, well, I had a better year. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just, it's just a simple game. 
um, but it's 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 a place to, it's a place to go in a disruptive life that we all have. We go in the stadium, and it's like as they said in the field of dreams: Are you in heaven? No, you're in Iowa. You're in a beautiful, clean place, and everything's in order, and it just makes your mind relax and feel really good about watching the game. You grew up in Denver, and of course, you're a Rockies fan. I'm assuming. Yeah. Yes, I am. Tell me about your favorite Rockies memorabilia. Larry Walker. Okay. Uh, Larry has been to my home, and I always told Larry that you're the only man I ever met that had to turn sideways to get inside the doorway. He's an outfielder, right? Yeah, enormous guy. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, you know, he wears the same number 33 as Patrick Waugh because they're good friends. Hall of Fame candidate as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when that stadium opened, uh, it must have been a huge, a huge event for you. It was. um, And I'm fortunate enough to own the first All-Stars uniform that ever played for the Rockies, Galarraga. That's on display at the museum along with Vinny Castilla and Larry Walker's All-Star jersey along with Todd Elton's game used bat. Is there anything in your collection you would not want to put on public display? You're like, no, this is just for me. Uh, no, except my catcher's mitt when I was a kid, but nobody cares. <laughs> no, I'm ha- I, I have to tell you, and I and the people out there, uh, you get on that elevator at the museum, you're going to heaven. Uh, you see uh, uniforms of DiMaggio, Colfax, Williams, uh, Pete Rose, Joe Jackson's bat. It goes on and on and on, and you'll see 60 Hall of Famers bats uh, for you to, on display. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me as your guest. Denverite Marshall Fogel's collection of baseball memorabilia is on display at History Colorado until the end of baseball season in October. The rare Mickey Mantle baseball card is on display for three days next week, July 16th, 17th, and 18th. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Author Sandia Menon hit the New York Times bestseller list on her first try with a young adult romantic comedy about, of all things, arranged marriage. Now she has a new novel out, this time set in a Colorado Springs high school. It's From Twinkle with Love. Sandia, welcome back to Colorado Matters. Thank you so much for having me. From Twinkle with Love follows 16-year-old Twinkle Mara. She's an aspiring filmmaker who has a crush on the popular athlete, but soon finds she's fallen for his somewhat awkward but lovable twin brother. (laughs) Uh, It's told through a kind of diary, uh, Twinkle's imaginary letters to filmmakers she admires. Why did you write the story that way? I have always, I think, as all writers do, have had a uh, bucket list of things I've wanted to write. And writing an epistolary novel was one of those things. And when this idea came to me of a teen filmmaker, I just knew that she was going to be a wallflower and she was going to be somebody who would write in her journal. And the idea that she would write to her female mentors really appealed to me. And she's essentially living this in her mind. Yes. Yeah. Twinkle is the daughter of Indian immigrants, uh, and she has a creative streak. Is there any of you in her? 
is there any of me not in her? <laughs> <laughs> so it is you, yeah? It is, it is. And I think for me, as I was growing up, I wasn't seeing a lot of writers who were female and who were Indian and who were daughter, you know, daughters of immigrants. Yeah. And I think YA publishing, young adult publishing, is rectifying that for writers nowadays. But I feel like films are still really lagging. And there's not a lot of diversity in filmmaking at all when it comes to female filmmakers or filmmakers, filmmakers of color. And so that's kind of what I wanted to bring to the forefront. And you have a fan base of of readers who are craving that, right? Yes, absolutely. I think there's just been such a push for diversity in publishing, especially children's publishing. And these readers who are coming up now are just saying, we want to see books that reflect the world around us. It's expected almost. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The last time you were in Colorado Matters, you said that when your family found out your first book made the New York Times bestseller list, they were actually disappointed. They'd hoped you'd drop this whole writing business, as I remember. Now now that you have, have a second book out, have they changed their tone a little bit? <laughs> I think so. I think now it's more, okay, this is just what she's doing, you know, and let's just all ignore it and, and go about our daily business. So for me, as a mother and a wife, it's still always harder because they think, why do you need a career at all? Mm-hmm. Um, that's your career, you know, taking care of people. And so, um, but I'm happy to be ignored so I can sit and, and write my books. <laughs> Well, talk about that, having a family and raising a family and being an author, as well as just the the cultural issue I'm I'm hearing come out there, that your parents Mm -hmm. are like, you should be home with with kids. Right, exactly. It's hard to juggle all these different roles in your life, but my husband is extremely supportive. Um, My kids think it's really cool that I'm a writer, so I just focus on that, you know. (laughs) And and you write really strong girls in, in in your work, you know. How do you write about... Typical high school girl problems, boys, friend problems, and avoid stereotyping these girls. I think that I just write what feels true to me. I don't think that just because you like boys or that you're a little boy crazy uh, means that you are not smart or capable or passionate. And so I think there's nothing wrong with fusing those things. And that's how I view myself. I, I love fashion and I love reading magazines, but I'm also really smart. And I think that's completely okay. I, I found it very... Um it was wonderful that in the book there is this talk about class and talk about money. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twinkle's very aware that she doesn't have the kind of money that people around her do. Why include that aspect uh, in her struggle? I grew up um, fairly wealthy in India. But when my family moved here to the U.S., I was 15 and we lost all our wealth. We lived in free housing uh, on my street. And, you know, on the way to school, it was very common to see drug dealers and prostitution. And somebody was stabbed on my street for $11. So it was a completely different shift coming from where I did to where I landed. And I knew what it felt like to not belong in a high school full of kids who had lawyers and engineers and doctors as parents. My dad was an engineer too, but I didn't live that kind of lifestyle. And so I really wanted to portray what that would feel like especially when you factor in the fact that Twinkle is a girl and she's a girl of color along with the classism. Can we talk about the name Twinkle, how that came about? (laughs) So um, Dimple was my first heroine, and I chose it because it's actually a very common name in India. And it sort of became my my calling card. There was a lot of conversation about the name Dimple with some people in America thinking it was a name I made up and other people loving it. And so when the second book came around, both my agent and my publisher were like, do you have any other Dimple-esque names that you could use? And I said, sure, Twinkle. (laughs) It's so fitting for who she is. Thank you. Did you have the name before you had the character? 
I did. I did have the name first, and then I knew that the character had to be somebody who could match it. What made Colorado Springs such a good setting for this book? Could it be set anywhere else? I feel like it really has a Colorado heart to it. Um, I talk about the mountains and I talk about the summer rainstorms. And um, I wrote it when I had just moved to Colorado, which was about two years ago. And I fell in love with this area. And I felt like not a lot of young adult novels were set, especially not in the springs. Yeah. And I I felt like, you know, the springs can be cool, too. <laughs> What was it like to write this second book? Kind of getting your jitters out, getting all that stuff. You're like, okay, first one's down. Here comes the second book. Were there struggles with that one as well? I actually have a blog post on my website titled, What Do Sinking Ships and Second Books Have in Common? Because it was such a terrible time for me. And um, it was. It was because the first book you kind of write for yourself. You don't really know what kind of audience it's going to find. And then suddenly, especially if your first book gets any kind of success, people actually expect things from you now. And people want you to write a certain kind of book. And you're afraid, what if the readers are disappointed? And so the self-critic that all writers have just gets louder and louder. And I had to learn how to turn that off. How did you turn it off? Um, after a lot of trial and error, I think I just realized, do you want to be a writer or do you want to be somebody who has written one book? And I had to make that decision. So now with book number three, possibly, will, will that also still be kind of in the back of your head or, or have you moved through that? Um, so uh, book number three comes out next summer. It's the kind of a companion novel to my first book, When Dumbo Met Rishi, and it is done. It's all finished. I'm so excited. It was a much easier process. <laughs> yeah. And and when you have those moments of just, I, I don't know if I want to do this anymore, how do you how do you square that with your love of being a writer? I think about reader emails. They really keep really? me going. I get so many messages from teens who are, you know, who say this was the first time I saw myself in this book for whatever aspect, not just the ethnic aspect, but any other aspect. And um, I just remember that's why I'm doing this, you know, so it keeps me going. Are there any di- downsides to having uh, those fans? Do, do you feel pigeonholed into writing similar books based on what they love? I don't feel pigeonholed at all. It's the These are the kind of books I like to read as well. And so it's really fun for me to disappear into these happy, fun books, especially now, I think. And I'm not feeling pigeonholed yet. No. Yeah. Do you think you ever could be? <laughs> I, I suppose it's possible. And I have so many ideas that I don't think it'll be easy for me to say, I want to take a break and write something else. And I think it'll be okay for me to do that. Can you give us a little bit more of an example for our listeners, what, who Twinkle is, what she's like, and, and kind of explain to her who she is? Yeah, Twinkle is a 16-year-old aspiring filmmaker. She's also an Indian American um, girl, and she is she sees all these films that have become really popular, and they are always, almost always directed by white, rich males. And she wonders, you know, does that mean that I don't have a place at the table? And what about this art that I have inside of me that really wants to find a place in the world? What do I do with that? And so she's just trying to solve all these questions about identity and art and filmmaking and boys um, in the course of the book. And then she starts to write letters to these filmmakers. Right. And she poses these questions, right? She, she talks to them about that. Exactly. She she feels like nobody in her family really understands this burning passion inside her to make these films. And so she thinks who would understand and, you know, other female filmmakers who've gone before her would understand. And so she starts writing to them as kind of this release and this outlet. Now, do her parents have similar feelings like your parents had for what 
for what you, you have been doing? Um, Twinkle's parents are different from, you know, my parents. Um, her parents are more absent in that her mom is grieving the loss of her own mother, mm. whose funeral she didn't get to go to in India because they don't have any money. And her father works really hard to support the family. And so they're never there. And in fact, Twinkle has a grandmother who is kind of her ballast through everything. And her grandmother is the only supportive adult in her life. And final, final question, when you get those emails from someone who says, thank you so much for doing this, how does, how does that feel? Incredible. It just reminds me the whole reason why I write and why I do what I do. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That's author Sandia Menon of Monument. Her new ad- young adult novel is from Twinkle with Love. You can read an excerpt at CPR.org. Finally today, a new choral work recently made its Colorado debut, Street Requiem is an homage to people struggling with homelessness and poverty. It was written for a mass choir by three Australian composers. The Denver Gay Men's Chorus recently performed Street Requiem. Here's a recording of its world premiere in Melbourne, Australia. Requiem, performed here by the Choir of Hope and Inspiration. The piece made its Colorado debut recently with the Denver Gay Men's Chorus. And that's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.